Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. My name is Hunter. If you don't know me, I'm the youth pastor. Some of you got to meet me this last week as we welcomed the new sixth graders in. Um, It was hilarious watching all of the nervous faces as you dropped your kids off with us playing some giant ball game and kids falling on the floor. It was wonderful to see just the reaction that I got out of a lot of you. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to be here, like I said. And uh, today, you get to hear exactly who I want to be. And, and I know that's, uh, that's a weird thing. But in our series, we are talking with each of our pastors or each of the pastors getting to talk about who it is that they want to be or a quality that they really want to have. Uh, and uh, I'm excited because... I love the song that they just played, Even If. Uh, And I think it's by Mercy Me. I'm not sure if they're the ones who originally wrote it. Uh, And it's based off the song, As Well With My Soul. Um, But the Even If song, I love it because it's actually coming out of the scripture that we're talking about this morning. But before we jump into that, I just have a question for you. Have you guys ever thought some of the thoughts that are posed in that song? Have you guys ever asked your question, like, what happens if the mountain is unmovable? What happens if things don't get better? Well, I still have faith in God even if those things happen. It's hard, and it's something that all of us tend to think about. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead. Uh, we've got some guys coming up and down the aisles, uh, and they are passing out some Bibles. If you don't have one, please take one. Uh, if you've never owned one, please put your name in it. Uh, but we're going to be reading uh, most of Daniel chapter 3 this morning. So I'd love for each one of you to have it. If you've got your own, awesome. You can follow along with that. Uh, like I said, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. If you've got one of our Bibles, uh, we're going to be headed to page 5. 49. But either way, whether it's your Bible or one of ours, I'd love to give you just some background information on what we'll be reading this morning. You see, Daniel is a very fun book, uh, not because it's actually fun, but because there's so much involved in it. Uh, so to start off with, everything that we really need to know about Daniel spiritually is in the first couple verses in chapter 1. God says that he gives the Jewish people over to the Babylonian Empire. And it's probably because, like so often in the Jewish culture, they forgot who their God was. It seems like every other generation, they just completely walk away from their God. And every other generation, they do things that are just crazy ridiculous. Uh, And just so for some of you who aren't totally familiar, uh, this book actually comes after you know, the exodus, after Egypt, after uh, King David, King Saul, King Solomon. This is actually a long time after even the Jewish nation in general is kind of split in half. We have the Israelite nation that's up on top, and that's the top of the Fertile Crescent, uh, and they are kind of the 10 tribes. Now, there were originally 12, and the bottom half of Israel is Judah, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And those come together to form the country of Judah. And when we get to Daniel, those two countries are really fighting against each other. 
So that kind of gives us a little background spiritually into what God is doing in, J- in Daniel. But physically, I find the story even a little bit more interesting. You see, the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire, started in 626 BCE, or before Common Era, or BC, if you guys are, still remember that. This is a crazy story because God works what is physically happening in the world into what he physic or spiritually wants to happen to his country. Now, the Babylonians had an edge over everyone, and it's because they had figured out, to a greater extent than anyone before them, iron. They'd figured out how to, how to mine and refine iron. Now, this helped with lots of things, right? It helped them build buildings. It helped them create structures that were going to be really hard to tear down, like walls. It helped them create incredible farming instruments, right? They could make better things than anyone just based off the tools that had iron in them. I mean, think about it. If you only had to plow a field and only sharpen the blade once as opposed to every other row, it makes quite a bit of difference. You can farm a whole lot more. But, and this is the key, the thing they used iron for the most was weapons and armor. Now think about it for just a second. If you're an ancient warrior and your sword won't pierce the armor of the enemy, but their slices through you like hot butter, you might think about surrendering, surrendering a little bit early. Everybody was having a hard time with Babylon, and Babylon was conquering nation after nation after nation. And they were above it for one other reason. Because everything was being made so much easier because of the iron, they were one of the very first countries to actually professionally train their soldiers. So all of a sudden, it wasn't farmers holding up swords made of copper. It was actual soldiers holding actual weapons. Now, the Babylonians in general were very ruthless. They didn't just take your land. They took your people and they relocated them somewhere else so that you were unfamiliar with everything that was going on. They had the power to just do that. And not only that, but they humiliated you, your culture, and your gods. They were thorough. They also tended to steal a nation's future. And what I mean by that is they would take any important family or any youth that were coming up, and they would go to brainwash them. They would take them to Babylon, and they would give them the best of the best. They would show them just how good things could be if they lived under the Babylonian Empire. And it worked a lot. For a long time, it worked. They would show and educate them, these people they'd take, in everything that was Babylonian. Now, the very best of the people that they brainwashed would get to stay and actually serve in the royal homes. And that is where the story of Daniel picks up. We see that Daniel and his friends, and by the way, yes, that is Daniel from the Daniel and the Lion's Den story, if you heard that as a kid. Uh, They are in Babylon. They've been taken as some of the best youth of the tribe, or excuse me, of the nation of Israel. They're in a new home. Their country has been taken. Their families are missing. They're in a place they don't understand, and they're forced to do things in service of a country that they'd never seen before now. They were there to be assimilated into what is the Babylonian culture. And like I said, it was thorough. Now, one way I can exemplify this is the Jewish people believed names were extremely important. 
You took a long time to name your son or your daughter in the Jewish culture. And your name could change based on what God was doing in your life. When they came to Babylon, and because the Babylonians knew about the Jewish culture, the very first thing they did is they renamed each one of the Jewish people. And it was actually very powerful. Now, for those of you who have our app open, uh, by the way, our sermon notes are on the app. Uh, If you go to the very bottom of that, I've included some information about the name changes. Basically, you have Daniel, Hananiah, uh, Azariah, and Mishael. And they get renamed to Belshazzar. Belshazzar? Belshazzar. We'll go go with that. Uh, (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their names were in almost direct contradiction to their Jewish names. Because the Babylonians wanted to really install this idea that their God was inferior to the Babylonian ones. Now, this idea and the fact that the Jewish people had so many in-depth meaning so much in-depth meaning to a lot of their culture, made what the Babylonians did to the Jewish people so much harder. All of a sudden, these Jewish kids are in a place where they're being offered the best food in the world, straight out of the king's pantry. Wine for days. And remember, wine isn't like wine we have today. Wine was like the drink back then. That's what you wanted. Not necessarily to get drunk, but because it was delicious. They had the best of everything given to them. And all they had to do was be there and learn. Now, I want to sum up the first couple of chapters of Daniel for you, just so we get to where I'm going. See, chapter one is all about how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are trying to keep true to their God and their traditions. You see, they're in Babylon, and the first thing, like I said, they do is they get renamed And then they start getting all of this food and wine thrown at them. But Daniel and his three friends decide that they really want to stick true to who God has called them to be. And so, basically, they go to the head guard. And they're like, hey, can we, you know, just have vegetables and water? Which, in my mind, is just like, ugh. But that's what they wanted, right? So, the guard, his his initial response is, uh, no. Because if you show up at the inspection and you look even a little bit more sick than the rest of the boys, you don't look as healthy as them, then they're going to cut my head off, not yours. So Daniel says, okay, give us 10 days. Just try us for 10 days, and if we look even a hint less healthy than the rest, then you can do with us as you will. So the guard says, okay, and they try him for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends look happier, healthier, and fatter than any of the other boys in the program. That's pretty cool. But because of their enthusiasm for their God, because of that, God gives them favor among a lot of the officials that are seeing over their brainwashing, their teaching. Now, chapter two is a little bit trickier to just put into words simply, so I have to tell you the story there as well. Daniel shows that God is real and does something that no one else can do. Nebuchadnezzar has been, and that's the king of the day, Nebuchadnezzar has been plagued by these dreams, and he can't get them out of his head. Day and night, they're haunting him. So he calls all his wise men together and says, okay, I'm having dreams, they're disturbing me, I need to know what they mean. And the wise men are like, okay, come on, tell us what they are. 
And he goes, no, 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 I know how this works. You're just going to come together and you're going to come up with some clever answer and try and trick me. Instead, you have to tell me what my dream is and you have to tell me what it means. It's a reasonable request, I think. And the wise men, and I believe this is their literal uh, words, were like, what? They go, Lord, nobody can do that. That is, what you ask is impossible. And they go about this conversation twice-ish before Nebuchadnezzar makes the cool-headed decision to just go ahead and kill every magician and wise man in his kingdom. So Daniel and his three friends, which have been promoted to wise men at the point, at this time, uh, and were actually overseeing, you know, parts of Babylon, uh, this guard shows up at their homes and is basically like, hey, uh, I'm here to kill you because all the other guys failed. And naturally, Daniel just said, um, can I go talk to him first before you kill me? That would be great. So he shows up, talks to Nebuchadnezzar, and says, give me one night to figure out your dream. Nebuchadnezzar grants him a one-night stay of execution. So he goes home to his three friends, and he's like, okay, we got to do some praying, because we got to figure this out, or else we're gone. So they pray all night. Daniel prays, and God gives him the answer. So he shows up at King Nebuchadnezzar's palace and tells him what his dream is tells him what it means and it blows nebuchadnezzar away i'm going to trip up on all these names this morning i'm telling you nebuchadnezzar actually goes so far after the dream is interpreted to say truly your god is the greatest of gods and lord over kings a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this secret so he gets kind of a healthy understanding of who god is But that also puts Daniel in a position to show that God is real and gains high favor from the king. But he also gets a whole lot of envy from everyone else who's still alive, that is. Because I imagine the wise men in the room, to begin with, weren't around for that part. Now, that brings us to chapter 3. In chapter 3, the more I read it, the more I understand it, the more awestruck I am at just what happens. So Nebuchadnezzar has clearly just forgotten the whole uh, greatest of gods and lord of lord thing, right? Because what he's done is he's set up a golden statue that is 90 feet tall and nine feet wide of himself because he's awesome. And he wants everybody to bow down and worship it. And not just that, but there's going to be like a symphony orchestra going on. But the thing is, Nebuchadnezzar actually does have a plan here. He's put a lot of thought into this. The Babylonian Empire was getting massive, and he was having to have a lot of governors watch over different areas of Babylon. And he wanted to make sure each one of them was loyal. And so what he does is he brings all of these officials together, and it actually lists them in chapter 3 early on. And basically, it gives a lot of names. We don't have a lot of information on it. But it's supposed to signify that every advisor that was worth anything was invited, kind of without knowing, to this statue for coronation, for celebration, for worship. So naturally, the three guys we're talking about, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, show up there as well. Now, we're going to read Daniel chapter 3, verses 12 to 18 together. I'll have it up here on the screen, or on this screen, if you guys would like to read it off here. But I encourage you to read it out of your Bible, underline, write notes around it, whatever. But we have to know that 
Nebuchadnezzar's main plan here in front of this giant assembly of people that he's commanding to worship the statue or else be thrown into a fiery furnace, which is kind of a compelling reason why to go along with it, is he's trying to show or get to the point of who's loyal to him, who's loyal to the empire, and who's, more importantly, loyal to the gods that they serve. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 12. If you guys want to follow along with me in your Bibles, I encourage you to. Uh, I'm going to pause because I, I jumped ahead of myself just a little bit. Sorry. They show up to worship the statue, right? Naturally, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, loyal to their God, don't worship it. And then some astrologers or some important people who Nebuchadnezzar trusted in come forward and say, hey, uh, these guys aren't worshiping the statue. Okay, now we're caught up. <clears throat> these guys are talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is where their quote starts. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have, put in part, you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then, like any rational king, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up. I will give you one more chance, because I'm a merciful king, to bow down and worship the statue I have made. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what god will be able to save you to rescue you from my power. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we want to make clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have brought up. Ooh, some guts there. They looked the king of the world at the time in the face and say, nope, no, not going to happen. Uh, and, and again, keep in mind the context here. They're in a field with a giant statue. They have just heard music played to show that they are supposed to worship the statue. They're surrounded by everybody who's important in Babylon. And we find out they're also surrounded by some hefty soldiers as well. And these guys say, nope. It's like makes shivers run down my spine. I'm, I can't believe it. These guys have some goal. Now, I want to make and point out a couple of important things before we move on. The first one is, there's no Daniel talked about in this chapter. Now, there's lots of reasons this could have happened. Um, maybe, as we learn in chapter 2, Daniel is too powerful to touch at this point. He is number two only to Nebuchadnezzar himself. So even if he is in the field and he doesn't bow down, 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar like knows that Daniel is part of a God that's not his. So maybe Daniel is kind of exempt from this. Maybe Daniel is serving somewhere else in the kingdom at the time. We're not told anything about Daniel in this chapter. What we do know is that he's not there. And so focusing on the three guys that are there, well, they haven't actually spoken yet in the book of Daniel. So it seems to me like their bold friend, the friend who stands up to people, the friend who's an extrovert, is gone, is missing. And suddenly they now have to give an account for what they are doing. The second thing is, they didn't have a whole lot of time. As I said, uh, it's very likely that nobody was really told why they were supposed to show up at this field three miles south of where Babylon was. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted an honest view of who was going to be loyal to him or who wasn't. And he gets everything he wants right up to these three guys. So to be fair, it's no wonder he flew into a rage because he has loyalty from his entire kingdom except for the three guys who are leading provinces in his capital city. If they were like me, they might have been out of sorts a little bit. They didn't know that they were being taken. They didn't know that they were being taken to this field or the palace, and we're not exactly sure where the furnace was, but they didn't exactly know why they were being taken. Right? Whether it was in the field and they set up like a, a portable furnace there, or whether it was actually at the palace, whatever it was, we know that the astrologers talked to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, go get me those guys now and bring them here. The guards weren't exactly allowed to talk to people who were supposedly prisoners, so it's very likely that these three gentlemen are brought not only separately, but to the palace without giving any explanation. So they couldn't talk or formulate what they were going to say. They were caught off guard. And as I've mentioned or tried to emphasize, this was extreme pressure. You'll either do it or you'll die right now. All four of these things lead me to the same conclusion. That these three guys answered in unison with one another because the faith that they felt was something they felt to the very core of who they are, who they were. There was not a single doubt in their mind. That's really who I want to be. Because deep down, I'm not totally sure exactly what I'd do if I was put in a similar situation. I know what I'd like to do, right? I think we all know what we'd love to have happen. We all want to be the person to stand up and say no. But whether or not we'd actually do it is a hard thing to test without being in that situation. If we want to be known as someone who has faith to the very core of our being, regardless of the circumstance, it is hard for us to test that sometimes. We are in situations, it seems like, every day in our culture, now more than ever, that ask us to physically and emotionally respond to the question, do we have faith in our God? Now, I don't think anybody's putting us in a furnace for it, but I feel like every day at work, all of our friends, all of the people 
that are in our extended family, we all are asked questions or asked to respond to people in ways that either confirm or deny that we have great faith in our God. So my question is, is our faith so solid that every word and action reflects Christ to the world around us or not? And I'll be honest, sometimes I, I, I don't. I have to watch it. When I'm in a doctor's office and, and the doctor looks at me and says, well, Hunter, there's, there's this new thing going on. I, I Lupus, I guess. Uh, here's some more medication. Take that. It's hard for me to be in that moment and go, that's, that's great. God's got it under control. I'm excited. Seizures, yay. I don't do that. In fact, most of the time I look at the pills I have to take each morning and, and there's lots of emotions running through my body and not all of them are praising Jesus. It's hard for me to smile at people I know are talking behind my back. It's hard for me to look at people who are insulting people I love and be okay with them. It is rough for me to look that person in the eye and tell them I love them when I don't feel it. When there are horrible things going on in my life, some, most, a lot of the time, I don't know that my actions or my words reflect exactly who Christ wants me to be. So we have to ask our question, ourselves, do we have that even if kind of faith? Do we have that faith? Do we have the explicit trust in God? Do we have that solid belief that even if the worst thing happens, God's got it. He knows what he's doing more than I do. Even if my health fails, will I continue to trust in him? Even if the worst things come to pass in your life, in the situation that's hard to get off your mind this morning, will you continue to trust in God? I oftentimes feel like we as believers forget that God is always right with us. That he's in every experience, every hurt, and every painful moment. But he's also the reason why and in the moment of every blessing, every provision, provision that we see and get, and every good thing that this world has to offer. So again, I'll ask, is our faith so solid that every word and action reflects Christ to the world? Or are you guys like me and we sometimes forget that he loves us? That we sometimes forget that he, he loves the people even when they're talking bad about us. He loves them just as much as us. Do we forget that he provides for us? Do we forget that he helps carry our burdens? Do we forget sometimes that he gives us hope? That he gives us peace? I don't sometimes wonder this next part. I always wonder this part. What would happen if I had the same kind of faith that these three men did? What would happen if, if we all had the same kind of faith that these three men did? How would it affect our friends 
our family, the coworkers around us? How would it affect the strangers that we pass every day? Would it affect them at all? Well, let's look at what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and see if we can figure it out. Starting in verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And he ordered some of his strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in to the blazing furnace. So they tied them up, which I'm sure was comfortable, and threw them into the furnace fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in his furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. Like, killed them as they got close to throwing them in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell in to the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Uh, yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the fire, or as close to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire, and then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Not their cloaks, and nothing was scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. <laughs> Nuts! It's a crazy story. And man, can I just say, those guys are lucky. Or could it be that their faith was exactly as important as it sounded? I want us to think about something. What actually happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Not just physically, but what were the consequences for their actions, good and bad? Well, the first one and the immediate thing is their life was changed forever, right? Like, they didn't die. That's important. Their life was shifted and changed forever. And in fact, the life of everybody who was there to witness, all those advisors, officials, everybody in the place, 
saw what happened too. So their life, by extension, was changed forever. Everyone around them was forced to acknowledge God, whether they wanted to or not, because the decree the king made. Like, everybody had to acknowledge they could no longer make fun of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like I said, they didn't physically die, so that's a bonus. They put themselves in an even better position to influence others towards God. As, I, as Nebuchadnezzar did, like, or said, they got promoted. They were in an even better position to influence people under their command. Not to mention what it did for their testimony, right? So looking at that, based on their example, what might having faith like that, what might having faith in God that boldly do for us? Well, I think the first one is by boldly having faith in God, we could change our life for the better, forever. If we boldly step out in faith, there's no way that we're going to see God's absence in our life. I'll talk more about that in a second, but... Number two, it will change the life of everyone around us. Think about it. If you're boldly proclaiming Christ everywhere you go, the people who have to put up with you, I'm sorry, the people who get to put up with you, they're going to hear about it because you're going to tell them. They're going to have to listen to you, be excited about the God who saved you, about the God who provides for you. Think about it if it was someone else. It would be impossible for you not to be affected by it. Whether it's because of how obnoxious they are when they pray for you, whether it's because of the conversations you have or the fact that they're always encouraging you. That kind of faith is impossible to ignore. Good faith is contagious. It also sets an example of what salvation looks like. When someone who lives boldly is around us, it makes us naturally ask the question, what do I have? Do I have that same kind of faith? And probably more importantly, it makes us want what they have too. I don't know about you guys, but I'd love to be fireproof. Just saying. We will, when we live a life of strong faith, have other people watching us. They'll be examining our life waiting for us to make a mistake or to prove that it's real. The fourth one, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's going to give us influence over other people. Those same people watching, when they see that your faith is real, they're going to want what you have. They're going to be interested in what's going on. What changed? What's got you so excited? Why are you not worried about the things that you obviously should be worried about? What makes you so confident? Why do you trust this God so much? Now, there is a fifth one, but I feel like I want to give just a little bit of information on it before I tell you exactly what it is. And, and really, it's, it's kind of the obvious one. Uh, it's, it's the fourth guy in the furnace. Like, let's not forget that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to have a face-to-face-to-face-to-fire-and-to-face conversation with God, right? Even if it was in a really hot place. The intimacy they got to have in that moment with God 
I'm sure can never actually be put into words. But here's the thing. Intimacy and faith with God are kind of a circular process. It takes time to start. So I want to tell you guys an example of this, uh, and I don't want you to, like, call CPS on me, please, okay? Uh, in college, I always dreamed of having a daughter. I don't know why. I, I was a weird college student. Just let it go. But when I finally got one, the only thing I could wait to do was toss that little girl in the air, have her squeal with joy, and come down and land in my arms. The problem is, Evangeline didn't want to do that. Like, at all. The one time I tried it, she screamed in horror and held onto my hand. She wouldn't even come out of my hand. She was like stuck there, right? But we started doing this thing, and, and it started as kind of a joke in the bathroom. She got out of the bathtub, and she went to get dry. I had her lay on the towel, and I picked up the four corners of the towel and held her on the floor. And she popped her little head out, and because she has way too much language for her age, she said, it's an Evie pocket. It's adorable. You all would have melted, I promise you. And she stuck her head back in. Well, after that moment, like, every bath, she wanted an Eevee pocket. And she would play around, and then one day something happened. I'm like, wait a minute. What if I spin you when you're on the floor, right? She loved that even more. She started squealing like a little pig. She was excited, man. Well, then she wanted more. She wanted to show Mama. Well, Mama wasn't in the bathroom, so I picked her up in the towel, and then I hung her over the edge of the little banister, and she poked her head out, and she said, Mama, eat your pocket. And then, pretty soon, to my wife's horror, I started swinging her around <laughs> in the Evie pocket. And then, even quicker, I started really swinging her. <laughs> Lauren told me to stop that one. Um, but now... My daughter loves it when I throw her up in the air. She asks me to do it. But that kind of faith in me always being there to catch her, it took time to build. In the same way, our faith in God takes time to build. You can't day one expect that you're going to walk into a furnace and God is going to show up because you have enough faith for him to do that or because you have enough faith to move a mountain. Guys, what happens is we start seeing God do things. He, he gives us a provision that we weren't expecting. A family member does something amazing for us, or we see something happen that we just can't quite explain. And out of that provision, we go, God, that was amazing. And our faith grows. Well, because we have that little faith, we start looking for God other places in our life. And we start seeing God move all these pieces around. All of a sudden, we start kind of rearranging our life to look more like God wants us to have it, which, of course, means we're going to start seeing God even more, which, excitedly enough, means that God suddenly shows himself even more in our life. That's what I mean when it's a circular process. But at some point, you'll come to a furnace of your own, and you'll have an even-if kind of moment. As long as we're continuing to grow our faith. I guess I should say that too. And when that comes, we'll have the boldness to stand up and say, not going to do it. And even if the worst comes to pass, I trust. I have faith in God that he knows what he's doing more than I do. And that's really what I want. 
Guys, having a bold faith gives us a deep intimacy with God. That's who I want to be known as. As someone whose faith and belief in God is so unwavering that it changes my life and the life of those around me, that it sets an example and lets me influence everyone, and that it gives me an ever-deepening relationship with God. Let me pray. Jesus, you are so good. Even when we're not sure what's going on, I know that you have the roadmap to everything already planned out. God, please help me receive your faith. Please help me reach the point to where my belief is so strong that I can never waver. Please help me see you more in my life. God, I'm so excited for what you have to come for everyone here in the coming year. I pray that we all have amazing God sightings this week. And I thank you for the example that you've given us through your scriptures, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, I pray all of this and may all the glory and honor go to your name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless. Thank you.